Well, hi, John. Good afternoon, all of you. It's good, good to uh, come here on a full stomach and talk about meditation, right? <clears throat> um, anybody have uh, some questions or feedback about the little meditation that we did before lunch? Yes. Just one question, and you may be getting into it later anyway, but I was noticing as we, I was going from very focused attention on the breath to the more expanded peripheral awareness, that it seemed like it was, um, there were slight sensations that I would have um, attributed for focused attention more with like first jhana, and that it went more like the sort of those things going away towards the higher jhanas when I was going to peripheral attention. And then I just looked quickly at your book and it looked like you had attention as more of a first, first jhana type experience. Yes, attention is. Although in what I call the really light jhanas, yeah. like the whole body jhana, you have attention after, after first jhana. But in the, in the classical definition of jhanas, there is no attention after first jhana. So, uh, vichaka and vichara are uh, directed and sustained attention, and they characterize first jhana, but the second jhana is where they disappear, and joy and uh, happiness predominate. So I was mainly checking then that your definition of attention fits with that. So, as, yeah. Yes, right, right. Does it does fit in with that. Thank you. Yes. What about the qualitative difference between awareness and attention? Do you, do you, are you getting, really getting the feel oh, yeah. for I mean, how different they are? Yeah. I mean, having you talk about it has given words to something that I've sensed for exactly. a very, very long time. Yes. And I was really getting a sense of um, that trade-off. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. actually the experience of of the peripheral awareness is something um, I sort of got thrown into at some point along this path. I kind of lurked into uh, some form of insight that kind of threw me into much more peripheral awareness and very little attention. And um, that was disconcerting, and um, it took me quite a while to come back to some sort of balanced mindfulness. But these words really kind of explain mm. what happened, which is very, very helpful. Yeah. I, 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 I told you, you'd recognize this, yeah. It, uh, it, and it will become clearer as, as you go along for, for all of you, but yeah, it's, it's not something completely new. I have had that happen, that people, they, they read about it and they think, oh, this awareness is something completely new, uh, and, and, and I don't know what I'm looking for, what does it look like, and uh, you know. Somebody over here? Yes. <clears throat> Hi, thank you. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, like, um, when uh, we were doing the meditation and you asked us to put um, the um, awareness into attention and be focused there, it felt to me like, like uh, I was using a lot of brain. Like the energy was coming from the brain. I, I was, like, intentionally focusing on the attention. And when I was focusing on the awareness, it felt more like a whole body experience. Like it was, it was, it felt lighter 
on the brain. I was not using brain kind of energy anymore, mm -hmm. more kind of like from the body and like from mm -hmm. the electromagnetic field or something like kind mm -hmm. of like an expansion of, of, mm -hmm. of perception, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wanted to, I don't know if you can shed some light on yeah. it. Well, it, it, it's interesting, you're... <clears throat> so, in, in, in your in, in, in natural uh, way of framing things conceptually, the, the focus of attention feels like a head thing, and whereas awareness feels more open and expansive and more like a body thing, right? And... Um, I, I think that's a really interesting way to to describe it, because um, after all, uh, when we talk about something being really heady, you know, or somebody being really in their head or something like that, they're operating from this place of focused attention and analysis and uh, and all of the things that go along with that. And whereas uh, uh, when we want people to uh, relax and open up and, quote, get out of their head. In other words, get out of that analytical mode. We often suggest that they become grounded in their body. And so your languaging of this particular process is reflecting that, that way of describing it. But yeah, it's qualitatively, <clears throat> qualitatively what I'm hoping that you all notice is, is that, um, it's a different kind of information, but it's an extremely... You can have both at the same time. That's what's wonderful about it. And so you can be aware that your attention is focused on a meditation object, and you can also be aware of other things happening. And this is, this is where its power comes from, because you can be aware that there are distractions in the background that are pulling on your attention and that have the potential to capture your attention and cause you to forget and, and for your mind to wander. Yeah. So, um, and that's, that's, that's how we use it. That's, uh, now, probably from a practical point of view, from instructing people and guiding them in this, one of the things that we have to overcome is people are so used to conflating them that... Um, they, they, they find it, initially they find it uh, a challenge to, you know, I say use your peripheral awareness <clears throat> to uh, tell whether or not you've got, uh, while, while you're focused on the meditation object, use your peripheral awareness to tell you whether or not you've got some distraction that is threatening you. And, and they say, well, I, I feel like I'm trying to do two things at once. And if I'm doing this other thing, you know, then I'm not, I'm not on my meditation object and it's to to get past that is to realize that you can do both at once and that it's it's that that indeed when your attention tries to do the job of of peripheral awareness it does move away and it does leave your object but it doesn't have to and it's a, it's a subtle kind of thing but it comes really easy and the easiest the easiest way to recognize it when that happens, and this is what I tell people, is just realize that you were already aware, you already knew, I would use the word knowing, you already knew that those things were there before your attention went to them. You already know, knew that there was a thought, 
before your attention went to the thought. Right? And when you bring your attention back, you, you still know if the thought's there, or you know if it's gone, or you know if it's been replaced by another one. So, you want to pass the microphone over? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what was just described as that mo- more body-oriented sense of uh, peripheral awareness, um, uh, and the way you're describing it now sounds uh, a bit like what is traditionally called presence, a um, feeling of being present. Yeah, that's, that's when people are talking about presence and being present, they're talking about having... Uh, peripheral awareness. That's that's what they've been meaning all this time when you've been trying to figure out what does it mean to be present, <laughs> which is generally associated with more of a body body. Yeah. Well, especially if you have your eyes closed. <clears throat> really, the main thing is the the main source of sensory information is your body, and the the second major source is sound. And depending on the circumstances, where we are here, sound can be a pretty powerful component. But uh, always, bodily sensations are a major component of your extrospective awareness. And, and so that's, that's why the body reference. And, um, and it's also why you can overfocus on the body and neglect the, uh, the mind and, and sounds and smells and things like that. You know... Um, you can have peripheral, strong peripheral awareness of your body and not have introspective peripheral awareness of, uh, of the thoughts and the mental activities, which is ultimately much more important. In the long run, it really doesn't matter what sensations are coming from your body. And as a matter of fact, when you get to uh, stage eight where there's pacification of the senses, you get to a place where your perception of your body is just this... Uh, all normal bodily sensations are absence. And it's just this uh, sense of the presence of your body, but it's very it's very indistinct and um, uh, not in its usual form. So, let's go that way. <clears throat> I am curious um, about a particular function. Um, basically, the way we're talking about it, peripheral awareness is constantly on. Um, you can either tune into it or kind of be tuned out of it, um, which is effectively bringing awareness to your awareness. So my question is, what exactly is it? What is that function that becomes aware of the awareness? Is it something separate? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. it not? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the way I would put it, first of all, the awareness is, yes, it may be always on, but sometimes the dial is turned way, way down. So what we're doing is we're turning the dial up. Uh, what is aware of uh, being aware? What is aware of paying attention? Um, what is, you know, uh, the... Remember the Buddha said, what we're talking about is consciousness. Okay, and we could say, so, so who or what is conscious of being aware? Well... And I would come back with who or what is conscious of paying attention. And remember the Buddha said consciousness and the object of consciousness arise together. Yeah, they do. And although we have, we have the sense that 
there's the object, and then there's consciousness of the object, and then we always add this third component, there's someone or something that is conscious of the object of consciousness. Well, this is, this is what I would, let me show you a picture of what I would describe as the, the who or what that is conscious. Um, So in this particular diagram, <clears throat> this represents your mind, this, this big outer circle. And your mind consists of, this inner circle here is the conscious mind, and everything else is the unconscious mind. And information is passing from the various components of your unconscious mind into consciousness. And whatever is whatever appears in consciousness, that information becomes available to all of the unconscious, uh, uh, all, all of the different parts of the unconscious mind. The, this, these, uh, if we go to another diagram here. Okay. So these would be all the, the parts of your unconscious mind that are involved in processing sensory information this is all the parts of your mind that are involved with uh, what we call thinking, emotions, uh, memories, uh, perceptions, uh, all of those sorts of functions. And here's an interesting one. This is a part of the, we call it the discriminating mind. It consists of the thinking, emotional mind, and of the narrating mind. And this is the part of the mind that takes whatever happens in consciousness and creates the story creates a little event in the ongoing story of your life, a little episode, describes the episode and projects it into consciousness. So it's within consciousness that awareness and uh, attention are happening. So uh, this diagram doesn't show it, but we could, uh, do you remember the, the diagram of the field of conscious awareness? So this really is the field of conscious awareness and within this would be the little spotlight of attention. So who is, who or what is conscious of uh, the object of attention? That would be a little circle in here with an object in it. Or who or what is aware of the, uh, is, is conscious of the field of conscious awareness? Well, it's all these unconscious minds. It's all of these mental processes that are in the unconscious. Um, what th this part of the mind does is takes what happens, what appears in consciousness. You know, there's some, some sensations appear in consciousness. Um, they get interpreted, and then the, their their meaning gets projected into consciousness. And then there may be some emotion that's associated with it that's projected into consciousness. There may be a decision to act which becomes conscious. Well, actually, there may be several alternative uh, possible actions that get projected into consciousness. 
and these other the information goes back and the, and then finally uh, the uncon- various unconscious minds will agree that okay of the three choices of action available we're going to do B right and that appears in consciousness and then you do B and the doing of B or the being <laughs> um, the letter B okay. <laughs> <laughs> the doing of option B. <laughs> I love the way that it came out. The, the, the doing of uh, option B results in um, various sensory inputs. I mean, you, you feel yourself doing it. Uh, you hear or see the results of doing it and so on and so forth. That information goes in here and is created a little episode in the form of a story. And the story has an I and it has an it. It says, I saw it, and I thought this about it, and, and I had this feeling about it, and then I decided to do this about it, and uh, then I did this about it, and that's what it felt like. And that's all a story. And I is the narrative center of gravity of the story. There is no I. And as a matter of fact, there wasn't really an it, there were just some sensations that came into consciousness that this part of the mind said, created a perception that to account for those sensations and said, there's, there's an it and it's named Joe and I don't get along with Joe and so on and so forth. Um, that's the it of the story. So there's the I and the it, which are actually just, I mean, the I is just the narrative center of gravity of the description, of the episode. And, and this, this particular episode will be stored and you can recall it the next day. And depending, on, uh, depending on its intensity, you might be able to remember it a year from now or 10 years from now, so on and so forth. Or if the appropriate thing reminds you of it, you might be able to remember it. That's called episodic memory. But there really is no I. The, the I that saw something was really this was this was the eye that saw something and an image was presented into consciousness and all of these unconscious subminds could could receive that image in in their own form and uh, there there wasn't an eye that analyzed it there were a number of different mental processes that took place uh, kind of like uh, kind of like a group of pro- computer processors that, uh, you know, you've got your central processor and then you've got your other things that process different aspects of what's going on and all together they produce something that shows up on your on your monitor, right? And so this, this is like the monitor screen where the sensations were, they had been processed and so... That's the I that has this perception. And, of course, uh, due to your past conditionings and your association, remember, you don't get along with Joe, so the, the emotions that are generated have a particular flavor. And, and so the I that felt this about that um, is, is really, it's just really some uh, unconscious mental processes that were created as a result of your past conditioning. And they they projected an, a, a particular emotional state. 
same thing with the decision and everything else. So in answer to your question, the, the I that has the experience of awareness or the I that has the experience of paying attention to something is whatever those, whatever assemblage of all the many parts of your unconscious mind that happen to be tuned in to what is appearing on the, on the monitor here. Or you could think of this as a bulletin board, right? Answer your question? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. That's, it's a deep question because the answer is, has to do with the, with the illusion of self, how the illusion of self comes about. We get attached to the story of we, the narrative center of gravity of the episodic, uh, memory that's stored, um, becomes the imaginary self that we think we are. Hi. Um, so if you can just imagine for a second that let's say everybody here is a seasoned meditator, right? Yes. And has the same experience or almost the same experience as you do in terms of understanding these concepts. Yes. Um, what would you tell us now? Well, if, if, um, I would say, <laughs> well, I guess I'm, what I'm asking is, is if you were to write now a book as revolutionary as this one, what would it be about? My, my next book is going to be as revolutionary as this one. It's going to be about what, what awakening is from the neurological point of view, uh, neuro, neuro, from the neurocognitive point of view. So... Uh, uh, it would be the part would be about how we already have a part of the mind that knows there is no separate I and that knows that all the mental constructs that appear in in consciousness are exactly that their mind created mental constructs and therefore empty of uh, any self nature of being what they appear to be it would be it, it's about and yeah, that's what it's that's what it's about. And I'm going to talk. I was planning to talk about that after I finished talking about the role, how we can use this information to become, how you can all become adept meditators in a relatively short period of time. For those of you who aren't already adept meditators, and for some of you who are adept meditators but haven't yet really developed certain skills to the degree that they uh, they can be developed and. Uh, really should be developed in order for you to have the uh, maximal benefit of, of this meditative training. Um, so these concepts are going to allow you to go back and refine and further develop the skills that you already have. When I finished dealing with that, and I thought it probably happened tomorrow, I start uh, talking to you a little bit about these other things, about uh, the relationship. I, I keep hinting at it. But the relationship between the, the neural mechanisms that produce the perception that we call awareness, the mode of perception we call awareness, and the neural mechanisms that produce the mode of perception that we call attention, and the relationship to each other and their relationship to delusion on the one hand and wisdom on the other. Um, 
In other words, we're going to talk about everybody already has Buddha nature and what that Buddha nature is from a neurological point of view and what it means for that Buddha nature to reveal itself. So, there's a question way back over here. Hi. I wanted to ask something at the end of last session. You talked about the seven instances or something and to try to get back into that when you go into that. You know, mm. like, so what is that? Oh, seven times returner. Yeah. Yeah. Stream so entry. Seven times returner. Yeah. I have. I think I've experienced that three times, and that four. Oh, okay. No, but but I have. And each time, one time it was through. It was in the seventies when I started to work with the contents of my conscious mind, and once it was twice. It was in the nineties, and once it was through touch, and another time it was through um, kundalini yoga. Mm -hmm. And each time I tried to reproduce the thing that brought me there. It didn't, it wasn't like what you said about the feeling of oneness. It was a feeling of everything was okay. Mm -hmm. And it lasted for about a week. Yes. And then it went away, and I kept trying to reproduce it. Mm-hmm. and do exactly what I did before it happened, yeah. and I could never reproduce it, any of yes. the types. Right. Yeah. So, yes, well, um, often, th- this is very common, when you get a group of people together who have been consistently meditating or pursuing a spiritual path uh, for quite a while, uh, you find that the reason is that they have had one or more experiences which were extremely profound, but which didn't last. They were peak, what we call peak experiences. And they're trying to get that back again. They've had a taste. Okay? They've, 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 they've touched into it. And so now they know in a way that they never did before that what the, what the potential is. Um, they, the, State of being that the state of being that is potentially available, and what you had, you know, the the, the a very common one is is feeling at one with everything, but this is another one. This really strong feeling of okayness, and there are some others. Another is where it seems like all the inner talk just stops. And you, you go through your life, you, you can, you know, it can last for a few hours or a few days where, uh, you just, you know, uh, you, you, you're in the flow of life in the present moment, but there's, there's no inner self-talk about it. There's the storytelling just, you know, quits. Um, called non-symbolic experience. So, it takes a variety of forms. You can have an experience of, of impermanence where uh, it's, it's a little bit different than what I just described in the sense that you see that everything is like this interconnected flow that, that you know, uh, that 
it, it's it's like the the water in a stream that is is flowing uh, over and under the rocks and the branches and against the bank and forming whirlpools and everything else like that and and you feel like you're just one part of this uh, flowing process and everything is really beginningless and and endless and the distinctions between them are artificial so so these are the kinds of experiences that people have and i'm sure you go through a room of people you know a room like this and many of you are a, a good part of your motivation for being here is that you've had those experiences and you're trying you're trying to find out how how can i recover that better yet how can i live there and if you've had more than one of more than one type, then you realize that uh, the potential richness is, you know, being able to live in all of those um, different ways of being simultaneously. So that's the goal of the path. I have someone at the back here. Um, my question is, um, since you uh, have a neuroscientific perspective. Um, I'm wondering um, how do you view, like you've talked a lot about the kind of um, neural substrates of experiences that we're talking about. Um, how do those either, like how do those change with the aging process as is commonly talked about? In the how does this change with what? Like <clears throat> if you affect certain changes in your brain as a result of the types of practices we're discussing, mm-hmm. um, how does that change? Uh, along with the aging process? Oh, all of the practices that we're doing are producing, they're they're producing physiological changes um, and structural changes in the brain. And that's, you know, uh, if we take it the most basic level uh, of learning to meditate, when you get to the point where... um, you know that a distraction, a, a distracting thought was about to capture your attention, but your mind automatically corrected for it and it didn't happen. Okay? The reason that you have that experience, rather than the one you would have had maybe a month earlier, where uh, you, that thought arose, it caught your attention, it caught your attention for long enough that you forgot that you were supposed to be meditating, you forgot your meditation object, and then it might have led to a sequence of, uh, of different thoughts, mind-wandering. The reason for that change is that the neural circuitry in your brain has adapted. Uh, you, you, kept, you kept repeating the process of letting go of the dist- recognizing the distraction, letting go of the distraction, and then returning your attention to the breath until essentially the brain rewired itself so it automatically did that. So that's at the simplest level. Now, now I'm getting into, once again, what I thought I was going to be talking about tomorrow, is that um, we we are out of balance. And we are, we, we suffer awareness uh, uh, deficit, a huge uh, awareness deficit disorder as a culture and as individuals growing up in this culture. 
and it's something that probably started with the culture, with the uh, uh, agricultural revolution. <clears throat> Certainly, we can see it in uh, as history was recorded, beginning about five thousand years ago, and becoming more and more pronounced right up to the modern day. Uh, I mean, the, all of our machines, in particular our computers and our digitization of everything. You know, we're going digital rather than analog, right? Life. Life is naturally analog. The world is naturally analog. But um, attention and the brain mechanisms that serve it digitize what is inherently analog. I mean, what did I talk about earlier? Brain activity is in the form of electrochemical waves. The electrochemical wave gets parsed and information extracted. You know, well, what is that? We're digitizing, right? I mean, how do you digitize a piece of music? You take a waveform and you take little slices of it you know, and you make small enough slices that um, that to our ear it it sounds it sounds even, you know even crisper. Well, it is even crisper than analog because analog isn't that crisp, you know. And at first we really really liked it, and and so we all switched to uh, CDs from vinyl, right? But now we're starting to recognize that. Well, wait a minute, there's a certain richness that the vinyl and analog had that. Digital music doesn't, right? Well, that's what's happened culturally. Is we've gone we've gone way too far in the digital direction, and uh, and we're trying to go back home again. But we're not just going back home to being uh, pre-agricultural human beings, because that's that's not nearly as nice as what the possibility is. What we're doing is we're taking this innate potential that we have in in our inherent natures, which is reflected in the structure of our brains. And uh, we are, you know, the Buddha um, and other figures in history have discovered how you can take this and not only move out of this actually very painful and uncomfortable, overly digitized state, but actually go much beyond that using the uh, using the brain and using the uh, abilities that you have already innately within you, the nature that is, is part of you. That Buddha nature is something that is part of you. Um, that happens as a result of a restructuring of, of the brain. The brain of awakened being is different than the brain of a non-awakened being. And there are levels of awakening. And as you progress through those levels of awakening, you are using the same brain, but you're using it differently, and it's becoming rewired. Right now what happens is what you might call the left hemispheric functions. And I'm going to say that rather than left hemisphere. Left hemispheric dominant functions are strongly inhibiting right hemispheric functions. We change that. How aging affects us? Well, it's, it's very it's very interesting because um, I'm aging and I'm watching it happen, and I can see. Um, you know, I know what's happening inside is I'm losing uh, I'm losing neurons all the time, and my brain is gradually shrinking. And so my brain, in order to adapt, 
uh, it rewires itself so that fewer neurons can serve the same function. But as this happens, uh, it, it starts to get rather stripped down. Older brains are much, much better at pattern recognition than younger brains. And that's one of the things that happens as we lose the capacity to uh, analyze everything to in a lot of extreme detail is we begin to, we're fortunate in having a lifetime of stored patterns to rely upon. And so now we rely on those stored patterns and the various associations that we formed with them um, rather than uh, analyzing each new experience in terms of the differences between it and the last experience that we have. So I, I, that's one thing I can tell you, and I can feel it happening, I experience it happening, and I'll bet you can experience that happening too. You look like you're about the same age group that I am. So. And in some ways, in some ways, uh, it's an improvement, and in some ways we miss some of the abilities that we used to have. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Thank you. Um, but I think um, another angle that I would really love your perspective on is um, if you know meditation causes certain kind of adaptations that are, let's say, positive, they're constructive in our yes. lives. Yeah. Um, then does that kind of uh, forestall um, some things that could happen over time. Like, for example, if a certain type of protein builds up and causes Alzheimer's, are we all in this room uh, putting ourselves in a better position vis-a-vis that risk? Uh, well, they, uh, there's not a definitive answer to that question, but there are. it is very suggestive that uh, people who meditate are less prone to dementia and Alzheimer's. But... There's not enough data, and the quality of the data is too poor to make that as any kind of a definitive statement at this point in time. But it's suggestive that that, that is the case. That's a very fair answer. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for the book. It's amazing. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the higher stages, um, especially in, um, I guess, where language falls away and non-conceptual uh, elements. I'm finding I'm struggling uh, in that area. It's so uncomfortable. There's nothing to grasp that I fall back to lower stages. I reread uh, Chapter 5 yesterday. That helped a little. Um, yeah, I, 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 don't, don't take them, don't give the microphone away yet. I'm, I'm not, I'm not quite clear what you're asking or saying. And, uh, okay. sounds like um, it's... my experience is I get to a place of no self, mm-hmm. no language, uh, very subtle dullness, um, is the obstacle. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. So, and I, back to lower stages because I have the aha moment of insight where I'm not receiving that same mm-hmm. insight 
because there's nothing to grasp. It's complicated. Yeah. Does that well, make sense? <laughs> this is this is a really good example of what I was talking about earlier. That um, um, you can be an advanced meditator having an advanced meditative experiences, like you're saying, you you have experience of uh, of no self, and uh, I just ask you, do you do you do you live in that place most of the time? That's the that's my question. I find it uncomfortable in a way. It's very mm-hmm. foreign, mm-hmm. and I find myself wanting to deal with language so I could have more insights, mm-hmm. you know, practical. Okay, so, yeah. so you find yourself dwelling in a place of uh, no self and non-symbolic experiencing, and you miss the things that you had before, and you don't have the same degree of, uh, there's an incompleteness yes. to, your, to your development. Yes, and absolutely, I know absolutely exactly what you were talking about. And the solution to that is simple. You go back to chapters four and five, and and you you forget about all of the wonderful skills and, and abilities that that you've developed and manifested, and you go ahead and you uh, you you perfect the ability that your mind inherently has to automatically correct for distractions, uh, and you allow verbalizations to be a part of that. And then you move on to stage five, and you overcome that subtle dullness that's there, because that's probably the biggest thing that's holding you back, is the subtle dullness. And uh, then then what you're going to find is a dramatic improvement in exactly the kind of experience you have. You can dwell in the place of no self, a non-symbolic experiencing, and whenever you want it, you can invoke the symbolic processing. It's just, it's just, it, it's it's no, it's no longer running the show, and it's not supposed to be running the show. It's a tool, but now, right now, it's a tool that uh, that you you set down somewhere and you can't find. You want it to be a tool that's in your hand, and you can use it whenever you want. And then you'll be happy again. Then you'll feel comfortable again, right? And the same thing with the uh, the no self can have a certain feeling of kind of uh, directionlessness. And if somebody needs something, well, you know, then I've got something to do. But if uh, if there's not something outside of me, I I kind of uh, I'm, rudderless or or even at a standstill like the engines turned off right okay so what you what you're lacking is the ability to invoke that let's call it personhood as opposed to uh, the ego self but you, you the, it's what would be the ego self when it happened spontaneously and you had no control over it and you believed it was true you believed it was real instead you have this sense of personhood that you can call up and then it, uh, it, it now can fill that gap that you're experiencing. Now this is, this is something, if, if I have any criticism, I, you know, I, I, I don't like, what I like to do when I look at different uh, 
practice regimes, uh, different methods of practice, different traditions and things like that, is I like to see the commonalities, I like to see the shared characteristics, I like to see how one complements another. But whenever there's a case that one complements another, it means the other was missing something. And usually the other one has complements something that's missing in, in the first. And that's the problem. That's the problem side of these multiple traditions is that they leave gaps. There's not a full development. Um, and so you can end up, uh, you know, Jeffrey Martin has found that there's people who essentially reach what might be, uh, it, there's not a perfect mapping of what he does onto, onto the four paths of the Theravadan tradition. But he finds people which you might by their description, considered to be arhats, who find that to be such an unpleasant and uncomfortable, they feel so dehumanized that they want to go back to being the way they were before. And this, this is an ex- this is an expression of the incompleteness. You know, they haven't really they haven't really followed the whole path. It is an eightfold path, and all the parts of it are important. And uh, not only that, in terms of skill development, you know, there's. You, you can arrive at a, at a place of insight um, and lack the skills that are necessary to um, live in an awakened state comfortably. The most dramatic story of that at all, uh, and some of you may be familiar with this, is of a woman who, while stepping onto a bus in Paris, basically awakened, and she had no practice no spiritual background, nothing. Her brain made this shift. She had this difference in perception. And it wasn't that long after. I, you know, my memory's not that, that good. But it's, I believe it's something, she died something like seven years later. And uh, it became a very unhappy experience for her. So, um, yeah. It's... I wanted to follow up on your um, remark about pattern recognition, of being a little older myself yes. as well. I mean, some of the recent cognitive studies have shown that with memory, for example, if you, if you do a certain pattern, if you try to do a memory exercise, you can teach yourself to do a certain pattern, but it's not going to necessarily relate to other patterns. I mean, you can mm-hmm. teach yourself how to count for a certain thing, a narrow, a narrow wave kind of pattern recognition. Um, and in your own practice, as you grow older, I mean, since you don't have the same kind of attention processing speed that we had as younger, younger people, but that diminishes as you age, mm-hmm. how has your practice changed as you, as you grow older to adapt to that? change in, in the way that your brain is processing things? Well, actually, I think I'd say something more like my practice itself is, is the adaptation that um, the practice itself is taking me, has taken me more and more into those kinds of brain functions that we would 
described as uh, right-brainish, right? As I get older, a lot of what I lose is is more of those left-brainish kind of, of capacities. And my practice has been a process of, uh, you know, prior to, I mean, prior to aging becoming a significant part of my personal experience, my practice has been, a, uh, has consisted of a reintegration of the left and right brainish properties so that they uh, fulfill their complementary roles. And so as I age, my, my practice benefits from that. I feel and sense myself um, compensating for the deficits that uh, might be related to a left brain function with right brain functions that don't do exactly the same thing, but can produce more or less the same result, and vice versa, as I find certain right brain functions become less less uh, reliable that that left brain functions can fulfill, but in a different way, uh, those same things. So they're complementary to each other. So rather than, rather I find that the very nature of my practice allows me to see these changes happening without having the experience of going around with, with holes in my uh, cognitive abilities. The one gap in my cognitive abilities that uh, nothing compensates for is my uh, short-term and medium-term uh, memory loss. You know, and I feel that happening, and we all do. And the older you get, the more often, you, you know, there's a word on the tip of your tongue and you can't call it up, or a name, or somebody tells you something uh, and you forget that they've told you. Of course, uh, you you... You ask them, and they say, "I already told you that," and all of a sudden you remember it. You know that that sort of thing. Um, that's the only gap that that. Uh, otherwise, I see I see my mind now being well suited to adapt to the changes that take place as a result of aging, and that it's just a continuation of the process that that uh, has that my practice has been doing all the way along. Which kind of goes back to that other question: Can we really say that? Um, can we really say that meditation practice uh, reduces the uh, degree of uh, dementia that develops with aging, or maybe is it the truth more more the truth to say that meditation practice develops a much greater capacity to? Uh, to fill those gaps with other mental processes through, through a more integrally functioning brain. So I have a question about the uh, what kind of uh, effort, like we need. Okay. 
You're not coming from the speaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where are you? Okay, sorry. Yes. I, I see we, we have uh, lots of uh, adept meditators here, but my, I kind of represent the beginner level. So I'm interested in this workshop because I want to, I feel like what kind of effort we need in the meditation practice is very important. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of uh, um, see like the motivation of of your book is because the 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 misunderstanding is like we tend to overuse the the attention in the practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we tend to overuse attention in our lives altogether, and so when we go to practice meditation. Uh, we have uh, we 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 bring that to our meditation. That's one of the things that we need to overcome. Okay, and then were you going to talk about the the brief uh, the effort that uh, like the different efforts in different stages, like mm -hmm. uh, maybe tomorrow or today at a certain point? Actually, I think I'd like to talk about that right now. Uh, I, I've been. I've been trying to think how we could get into this. Uh, all right. All right. So let's look at an overview of the ten stages here. And um, I'm not forgetting your qu your question is the kind of effort. Okay. So I'm just going to do a real quick overview of the ten stages, so that you have an idea of the overall map. For those of you that don't have the book or haven't looked at the book yet, okay. First of all, the ten stages are divided up into four major parts, and there are four corresponding milestones in this. The first, the first part of the process, you're a novice meditator. The first thing you have to do is to establish a regular practice. And I'll just quickly tell you, um, to meditate for less time every day is better by far than to meditate for a longer time uh, once every few days. You're better off meditating 10 or 15 minutes every day than you are meditating three hours once a week or whatever other combination of that. Consistency is really important. Establishing a regular practice. And once you establish a regular practice, it doesn't matter whether, you, whether it's 15 minutes a day. It will naturally, you'll naturally want to extend that and it'll eventually become whatever it is that your lifestyle and motivation uh, leads it to be. So it might end up being two hours a day. Uh, then stage two, this is interrupted attention and overcoming mind-wandering. Stage two, every person, when they begin to meditate, they forget that they're supposed to be meditating. Their mind wanders, they wake up, and they come back to it. It's about overcoming that. Um, when you have much less mind-wandering, and when you have longer periods of, of attention to the meditation object before you forget what you're doing, then you're in stage three. And you enter stage three 
with extended periods of attention to the meditation object, and your primary task is to overcome forgetting. Stage four, you don't forget, you never forget, or you rarely forget the meditation object, and you rarely forget that you're supposed to be meditating while you're sitting there. Um, so you have more or less continuous attention to the meditation object. Well, on the fine scale, you don't because your meditate, your attention is still alternating with distractions, but you never really lose, uh, the meditation object. So that's, that's where you enter stage four is with a degree of continuous attention. You've achieved, this is a milestone that you've achieved. You can do something now that most people, including most meditators, can't do, which is keep your attention on, on a meditation object for an extended period of up to 45 minutes or an hour most of the time. Your problem here is overcoming gross distraction and strong dullness. That's what you do in stage four. Gross distractions are, you haven't lost the meditation object, but you're giving almost as much attention to some thought as you are to the meditation object. And uh, dullness makes, uh, dullness and sleepiness usually make an appearance in stage three. Stage four, you're overcoming strong dullness. You train yourself, you've succeeded at stage four when you reach the point where you rarely, if ever, slip into dullness. Like if you didn't get enough sleep the night before, or several nights in a row, or if you're really fatigued or stressed, or if you're ill, uh, you, you might experience drowsiness and strong dullness. But you've basically overcome the tendency for the mind to slip into dullness by stage four. What you're left with is subtle dullness. We actually, um, if you look at the level of activity and alertness of your mind, at one end of the spectrum is when you're sound asleep, unconscious, comatose. At the other end are those experiences that you've had where uh, your mind is super energized and alert. People have those experiences in, uh, in uh, dangerous situations, you know, life-threatening situations. Your mind slips into this super high-intensity mode. Uh, so that's the range. Where we usually live, if, if this is the midpoint, we usually live our lives somewhere just below the midpoint in that range. And when, when there's something particularly exciting going on, well, we, we move past the midpoint into the upper half of that range. Usually when we sit down to meditate, we're somewhere below the midpoint of that range. And at least until you've completed stage, until you get to stage five and do the work there and master that, your typical meditation is you sit down with this degree, and remember our spectrum goes like this, you've got this degree of, of alertness, mindfulness, uh, and by the end of the meditation, it's, it's, it's gradually creeped down to less than you started with. You may experience that as a kind of fatigue, Meditation fatigue, right? You've had that? You know what that feels like. Okay, you need to overcome that. If you don't overcome that, your mind's going to learn to settle into a place of sustained subtle dullness, and it will be deep enough that it'll feel really comfortable, and your attention will seem to be really stable, but you won't really have any peripheral awareness. 
You know, that's, that's the kind of meditation where, you know, I, somebody says afterwards, oh, that was a great meditation. Yeah, I don't know where I went, but, you know, you know, they're sitting in dullness. And, um, and it's illusory because it's very pleasant. You think, well, I'm experiencing the bliss of the higher stages. Because in that state of sustained dullness, there are very few distractions because basically you're partly asleep. You feel like, oh, I have really stable attention. You know, so you can fool yourself into thinking you're an advanced meditator. That's why stage five is so uh, important. The idea, overcoming subtle dullness, I'm pointing with my finger, overcoming subtle dullness and increasing mindfulness. So you recognize, you've learned to recognize by the time you go into this stage that that, that state of subtle, comfortable subtle dullness develops. And in stage four, it was really helpful because it helped you to overcome the tendency to be be caught up by distractions. You know, that that subtle dullness is a more stable state in terms of attention. Uh, although in some ways it leaves you more vulnerable to to forgetting once again if it gets too strong. But you come into stage five, and you're aware of subtle dullness. You've worked with dullness, and you're aware of that sustained subtle dullness. And the idea is that when you reach the point where at the end of your sit, you're more alert, you're more fully mindful, your mind is brighter, sharper, and clearer at the end of your sit than it was at the beginning, then you've achieved the goals of stage five. Up until stage six, all the way along, you've allowed subtle distractions to be there. That's where your attention alternates with things in the background, usually thoughts, sometimes sensory phenomena. Uh, often aches and pains in your body, and they stand out from the background. And the reason they stand out from the background is that your mind, that your attention is alternating with them. But and we call them subtle distractions. And um, you don't try to do you don't want to try to do anything about those until you've taken care of these other problems first. You notice we're, there's a sequence to this. Like I said, we we take care of first things first. And then we move on to the next thing. Well, now at stage six, you're ready to overcome that uh, uh, subtle alternating attention to various distractions in the background. Okay? And um, that is exclusive focus of attention. You put your attention on your meditation object, and it stays there. It stays there the whole time. It doesn't do this alternating anymore. Now, that corresponds more or less to what is often called single-pointed attention. I do not like that term because most people interpret single-pointed attention as the meditation object is the only thing in your mind. And that's the last thing in the world I want to happen to any of you. Is I want you to have powerful peripheral awareness and, I'm, and by this stage, I want that peripheral awareness to be not only introspective, but to begin to be metacognitive, like, like introspective, uh, introspective awareness is knowing that there are thoughts present coming and going and knowing that there are, are emotions and memories and, uh, you know, feelings of restlessness or impatience or, or feelings of pleasure and contentment, things like that. Introspective awareness is knowing that. Metacognitive introspective awareness, it's like viewing from above. It's like you rise to a higher level and you see attention 
following the meditation object, you see the thoughts and uh, and emotions and everything, other kinds of mental objects, arising and passing away in your mind. You you you'll see sensations coming in and and uh, going away. But it's those you're watching the whole panorama of your mind from a higher perspective. So when you so you have a degree of that and this is the next milestone but the most important thing is you have exclusive focus of attention. Now stage 7 is a transition. This is called the skilled meditator. You're you're a skilled meditator when you can sit and uh, rarely, if ever, lose a meditation object. But you've really mastered all of these skills when you no longer even have subtle distractions and you can sustain an exclusive focus of attention. Now, this still requires ongoing vigilance and effort in order to maintain that. The effort is the effort that it requires to be vigilant, to notice when there's a potential for a distraction to arise or when there's a potential for dullness to arise and to actually correct for it when it's necessary. Remember, by this stage, most of this correcting is happening automatically. But you have to be vigilant because the one time that it doesn't, that's the time that you can get caught by distraction or that you can slip into dullness. So... You do this, and it requires uh, a certain amount of of effort. So you do this until it all happens effortlessly. And that is the next milestone. Effortless stability of attention, and not mentioned here, is effortless, powerful, introspective, mindful uh, uh, awareness, uh, powerful mindfulness, and your introspective awareness is largely metacognitive. At this point, you are an adept meditator. And stage eight, this is where pacification of the uh, senses take place. Uh, At the end of this, you will be able to sit comfortably for hours at a time and get up. Your limbs won't have fallen asleep. Um, Mental pliancy um, means that thoughts will rarely arise in consciousness at all unless you want them to. You give them permission to, and they arise, and there are practices that you can do with the thoughts now that you have control over whether or not, whether or not your mind switches into that mode of, of, of thinking and talking to itself. You can turn it on and off at will. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, as the mind becomes unified, there's a strong feeling of joy, but it's associated with a lot of energy. And somebody in stage eight, will uh, often go to sitting in meditation and they're rocking and they're jerking, there's uncontrollable twitches and they feel these energy currents running through their body. It can be very disturbing. You know, uh, uh, they have strange sensations happening, uh, feel like ants crawling on them, uh, suddenly feeling cold, feeling hot, breaking out into sweat, salivating, uh, you know, a lot of weird things happening there. Stage nine, that all calms down. And um, you come to a state of joy. There's a lot of excitation still there, but it's mostly mental. And um, it can be so intense it bumps you out of of this state. 
So stage nine is you, you have mental and physical pliancy. It's about calming the intensity of the meditative joy so that that energy smooths out and you develop tranquility and equanimity starts to develop. Stage 10 is where you cultivate tranquility and equanimity to the extent that they remain after you get up from meditation cushion. So you're now in a state of fully developed samatha or shamatha in, in Sanskrit. And uh, that can sometimes persist through till the next time you sit down to meditate. So those are the ten stages. Now, your question was, what kind of effort do you put in at every stage? Whipping through the more detailed description of the stages here, because... All right, here's where we want to be. All you're really doing in meditation is forming and holding specific conscious intentions. Nothing more. This is where your effort goes. Your effort goes into being diligent. Your effort goes into making sure that you sit down on the cushion and start with it. Your effort goes into... uh, forming the resolve that you are going to practice diligently. That you know, you've learned, you've learned what you're supposed to do when you wake up from forgetting. You've learned what you're supposed to do when you sense subtle dullness developing, if you're in stage five. You've learned what you're supposed to do at each of these stages uh, as you go along. So you form the intention, you put your effort into forming the intention that throughout my sit, I am going to respond appropriately to whatever happens. Now, you're not always, you know, you may, you may be used to sitting in stage five, but then you find you're in stage three. doesn't matter. You are going to practice according to the stage that you're at. Or you may find yourself suddenly in stage six. Well, you should have read ahead so that you know what to do when you, when you find that you can that you're ready to practice stage six. But the effort goes into the determination, the resolve, the intention to do what, you've, what you're supposed to do for the stage of the practice that you're in. Intentions repeatedly stained, sustained over the course of many meditation sessions give rise to frequently repeated mental acts. Obviously, right? And you learn, your effort goes into not losing those intentions. You know, sometimes you have a meditation, you get partway through it. It's not going that well as far as you're concerned. That's your judgment of it. It's not meeting your expectations. You're tempted to just sit there and daydream or solve a problem. Or maybe you're writing a novel in your mind. Or maybe you're really writing a novel and you say, oh, let me see if I can figure out how I'm going to deal with this plot situation in chapter six. You know, you have the the effort goes into that kind of intention to be diligent and to actually practice the way you're supposed to. And if you do that, then that intention will lead to you performing these simple acts. And so uh, intentions repeatedly sustained over the course of many meditation sessions give rise to frequently repeated mental acts which eventually become habits of mind and the habits of mind that lead to joy, equanimity, and insight. So that's where your effort goes to. 
we can be more specific. In stage one, put all your effort into forming and holding a conscious intention just to sit down and meditate for a set period every day and to practice diligently for the duration of the set. That's where the effort goes in stage one. When your intentions are clear and strong, the appropriate actions naturally follow and you'll find yourself regularly sitting down to meditate. Can you also add the, the part of the, in terms of the awareness and attention? It's like okay. in this stage, stage two or oh, stage one will be there more yeah, well, attention versus awareness? Yes, in these early stages, uh, your, your awareness is still relatively undeveloped and a lot of the practice If you look at the details of the practice in stage one, two, and three, they're uh, a lot about making sure that you don't uh, that you don't lose awareness, and then starting to use that awareness to help you stabilize attention and achieve the goals of that stage. So, um, what else can I say about that? Um, one of the things in in, re- in relationship to intention is you want to be aware that you, uh, uh, you want to hold that intention in awareness as much as possible. If you've set the intention, it should be a part of your awareness, right? And uh, when it's not, then you might actually use your attention to reinforce the intention. You might, for the moment, abandon the meditation object and just, you know, reassert your intention to uh, to be diligent and and, to, and and you know don't feel like oh well I'm, I'm I'm breaking the rules I'm not supposed to do that well no you're doing just the right thing to use your attention to reinforce that intention and sustain it in awareness okay stage two willpower can't prevent forgetting and mind wandering just hold the intention to appreciate the aha moment that recognizes mind wandering. Gently but firmly redirect attention back to the breath. Then intend to engage with the breath as fully as possible without losing peripheral awareness. You've heard me repeat that a number of times. That's an intention. And the simple actions flowing from these intentions will become habits of mind. Mind wandering will decrease and periods of attention will grow. You don't have to, you don't have to strive to keep mind wandering from happening. You know it's going to happen. You let it happen. Instead, you maintain the intention not to get upset about, not to get judgmental, not you know, not to do all these other things that uh, we naturally tend to do, but just to follow the very simple instructions for each stage. Stage three: set your intention to invoke introspective attention frequently before you've forgotten the breath or fallen asleep. Make corrections as soon as you notice distractions or dullness. Also, intend to sustain peripheral awareness while engaging with the breath as fully as possible. Once again, these intentions and actions they produce are simply elaborations of what we did in the last stage, but they're bringing us one step further. In, In the last stage, the biggest problem was when we did forget, we had long periods of mind wandering, When we when we woke up from mind wandering, it didn't take very long before we were back in mind wandering. So now we're basically doing, you know, uh, the same things we did in the previous stage. But the end result is going to be 
that we get to stage four, where now we rarely lose a meditation object. And now we have enough introspective awareness that we can start using that introspective awareness more effectively to prevent uh, gross distraction from happening. So you set and hold the intention to be vigilant so that introspective awareness becomes continuous. And you notice and immediately correct for dullness and distraction. So this is kind of a restatement in terms of intention, which is actually a more uh, accurate description rather than those other descriptions that say, when you experience this, then you do that, right? Because a lot of that involves illusion. This is essentially the same pattern that goes through stage six and you will become, uh, you will have mastered all of these skills. And the transition, everything now becomes really simple. Stage seven, all you do is just uh, keep doing the same thing that you were doing and uh, guarding against uh, the onset of subtle distraction or, or dullness, dullness or distraction, until it becomes effortless. So I won't even bother reading that slide. But yes, you want to say something, John? Uh, yeah, you look like you're about to say something. I was going to wait and then raise my hand, oh. but you, you caught me. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that sort of led me astray a little bit in practicing this system, um, uh, one of my misunderstandings was uh, an attempt to sort of wield my peripheral awareness the yeah. way that you can wield your attention and to, uh, and to treat awareness as a thing that I could consciously direct. Yes. Um, and so we've talked a little bit about the idea of intention meaning different things when you're referring to attention versus awareness. We've talked about sort of lift your arm intention versus remember the milk intention. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if you could if you could speak to that idea that that potential sidetrack and error so that other people yeah. don't uh, engage in the same misunderstanding that I did. Yes, that's a very good point. Thank you. You know, in in the uh, in the small amount of guided meditation that I've done with you, <clears throat> and I apologize it's such a small amount, but um, but everybody has so many wonderful questions. Anyway, you'll notice that I talk about you know intentionally directing your attention. You can intentionally direct your attention. You do have a degree of control over attention. You don't have any control over uh, peripheral awareness except through the intentions that you you form, you know, and a sense of a desire or a wish or a hope. Uh, uh, you know, you intend to have strong peripheral awareness, but you can't make it happen in the same way that you can move your attention from the tip of your nose to the left big toe. It's very easy to move attention around from this to that. But you can't, you can't decide to uh, have strong peripheral awareness. Or you can't, you know, what you can do, is, it, it becomes really obvious that all you can do is hold the intention and uh, hope that it will happen. And most of the time it does happen if you let it. 
And uh, now the, the one other way that we have that we can help to develop peripheral awareness is that we know that that awareness responds to what intention does. And so we allow our attention to to check in. In stage two or stage three, we let our attention check in on the quality of our peripheral awareness. Okay? But that was attention doing it. And we can't make we can't, you know, as John says, wield or force ourselves to have peripheral awareness. But we can check in with our attention and say, ah, yes, I did have some peripheral awareness. Yes, not as much peripheral awareness as I had last time I checked, or could be, ah, and I have even more peripheral awareness than I did when I checked in before. But because you've checked in on in peripheral awareness, your peripheral awareness is going to go st- grow stronger as a result of it. Another thing you can do in your checking in is intentionally look for the kinds of distractions that are most likely to capture your attention. You had a fight with your partner and thoughts about that keep coming up in, in the background and you know that if that that's one of those things that is most likely to capture your attention and cause forgetting. So you can, you can direct your attention uh, to your introspective, uh, introspect your mental activity using attention, and you'll see that, aha, yeah, the thoughts, the thoughts about my argument with my girlfriend are there, or whatever it happens to be. And then you go back to the breath. Well, what you've done is you've primed peripheral awareness. And that's all you can do, though, is you've primed it. And, and because you've primed it, you're much more likely to be aware when that thought is starting to encroach and beginning to draw away more and more of your attention. But that's that's the limit of it, because that's the limit of what you can do. You can't control peripheral awareness in the same way that you can. You, you can only intend, and in the early stages you can use attention to reinforce it. Hi, just kind of a continuation of that. So in um, the last se- the last sentence says infusing your daily life as well. And of course, I mean, I think it's great to be a good meditator, but I also think it's great to be able to live a life that's fulfilled and connected and that's sort of, there. one is en route to the fulfillment, right, of the other. So right. in my daily life, for example, as these... Um, Conditioned thoughts arise uh, through practice. It's able, you know, I'm able to witness them and sort of see them and not attach to them so much, right? So I don't then create more karma by acting on these judgmental thoughts. Exactly. However, yeah. um, as they're arising, for example, and I'll just because you know we're invited now, especially about you know the state of race relations or the state of anything economic inequality to very you know to speak about these messy conversations right and sort of have these things so i will say okay well someone who is obese will be on the subway and then i will have this thought arise about what that means or mm-hmm. and then i'll say oh and there's that thought yes and now i can say hmm we know that came from your own conditioning of whatever and then kind of let it go and then bow to them and wish them well right yes. so how do we extend that perhaps from 
does it, do we get to that place of the thought not necessarily arising? Because I'm not really judging myself about it. Yeah. I've recognized that it's come up naturally through the conditioning. But do we ever really get to that point over time where the compassion is almost immediate as opposed to, I don't want to say an afterthought, but a, a trained response or a habituated response through the practice? Does that make sense? Yes, yes. That happens as a result of awakening, you know, um, the, the very first stage of awakening is, in, involves the, uh, the, the realization that there is no, that you are not separate, there is no separate self that you are, and that everything is interconnected. And so that gives birth to a kind of compassion that no self-centered individual is capable from, uh, capable of. That has to be further developed. And the practice of virtue is one of the ways that we develop that. But uh, one of the practices, too, is... Uh, uh, it's right, right, uh, right thought and right intention, right? So you find yourself having an unwholesome thought and you don't want to squish it down like you said you have an unwholesome thought and you understand that that comes from your conditioning and uh, since the conditioning is the cause squishing squishing the thought isn't going to help you see if you can alter the thought in a positive way um, and if you can that's that's wonderful you know sometimes you can't though right so that's almost um some of like the neuroscientific stuff about the uh, positive psychology or reinforcement where you're actually sort of doing thought replacement at a certain level, if you will? That's, or is yes. that even the right terminology? I don't know. That, but. that is the right. As a matter of fact, that's the Buddhist terminology for it, is thought replacement. It's, it's, it's a particular practice that the Buddha described in one of his suttas. He said, I realized I have two kinds of thoughts, you know, and uh, the unwholesome kind is taking me further away from awakening and nirvana and it's not good for me it's not good for others and i have the kind of thought that's bringing me closer to awakening and nirvana and it's good for myself and it's good for others and so he describes a process of thought replacement so that's practice that's a buddhist practice uh in positive psychology yes that's what you do and it's very powerful and that's exactly what you want to do um sometimes you can't succeed in you know the thought strong so you accept it Okay, but at the same time, you can recognize it for the harmful thought that it is. You can acknowledge that. You can accept it. You can say, "Okay, I've got, I've got conditioning. Uh, as a result of that conditioning, I'm having this kind of thought. Eliciting this kind of negative emotion, and that the emotion is strengthening the thought." I recognize. You just objectively and mindfully look at the process. And most important thing about mindfully examining the process is recognizing the harmful nature of that thought to yourself. You know, if, if part of your acknowledgement of the unwholesome thought is acknowledging the harmfulness that it does to you, and you're holding that in consciousness, then the unconscious part of your mind that is feeding that thought and those emotions 
is going to get the message. Maybe not the first time, maybe not the 15th time, but eventually it's going to get the message. You'll notice a difference. You'll notice a difference very quickly in the thought replacement process. Uh, I say maybe not the 15th time. It doesn't usually take 15 times of doing this. Now, usually you're surprised that uh, you do this once and you'll find the next time you're in a situation like that and the negative thoughts and emotions arise that they're already much weaker than they were before. And if the same thing is you hold that recognition that this is not beneficial to me, this is not beneficial to others, this is harmful, this is, this is this, having this kind of thought, but I don't blame myself because, it's, you know, I'm recognizing that this is an aspect of my conditioning and the only thing that can change it is a new kind of conditioning and that's what you're doing by acknowledging its presence, accepting its presence as, as presence, not accepting it as valid, but accepting it as present and uh, forming the resolve that, that you will continue to recognize its unwholesomeness until it goes away. And would you just say then that that's sort of a way of practicing in real life, not on the cushion, but I mean that's, as part of your daily practice? That is, that is what you should be practicing in your daily life. That's right. Yeah, that is, that is the essence of... Um, the, the essence of mindfulness in your daily life in general is being aware, as you know, I described to you mindfulness with clear comprehension of your thoughts, feelings, speech, and actions, and the motivations behind them. Now, it's the motivation, the, the unwholesomeness lies really in the motivations behind them, right? Yeah. And then recognizing that this is not something that I want. This is, as the Buddha said, this is not bringing me closer to awakening and nirvana. We're here. Okay. Yes. Um, um, I I have a similar. I guess I'm in the same track. But going back to the seven times that you have to repeat something so your mind gets that, and, and when you have an insight, not a, a. I think there was a mundane and a super mundane. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that those insights are more related to things that are significant in your life, like grief or illness or loss. And last summer, I had one of those experiences, and. I've been wondering, and I know one or two of my brains have caught that for sure, and I've not forgotten it, but I keep wanting to find a way to have that happen again or the rest of my brains to catch on because I feel like it could really help me in my life so much to just get that. So I was thinking when you were talking about, is one way that I could do that when I'm meditating to have the intention around my peripheral awareness to just go into that place and experience that again? Is that one thing I could do when I'm meditating? Mm-hmm. Would that be? Because I feel like I'm not getting, haven't, I haven't ever, other things have come up in the last months and it, I've not ever been able to recapture or gain anything more from what I think was a pretty powerful and important experience in my life. Yes, yeah, so you can form that intention, but with no attachment at all. Right? And that's the challenge. It's really, you know, you want it. What you're telling me is, I want that. Right. I, I, I want it. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe and, that's part of the... And, <laughs> and that's, that's exactly part of the problem. Yeah. And so the, the thing is to, to say, okay, yeah, I want it, but, but I'm going to let go of that. And if it sure would like it to come, but uh, if it doesn't, it's all right. Just keep reminding yourself. 
Yeah, I'd like it, but if it might not come. So maybe the other five times I just have to wait around for and create an environment where I can, where that might happen for me. Well, the the thing is that all of the wholesome mental states and all of the wholesome activities that may have led up to that experience, those are the kinds of things that you want to replicate. And there's value in replicating them regardless of whether or not they reproduce that experience. Because they're wholesome by nature, right? right. Yeah. So it makes it kind of simple. It's, it, it's a win-win. Maybe you'll get the prize you want, but even if you don't, you'll get a different prize. Thank you. That's, that's great advice. Yeah. Um, Where do you want to go next year? Um, do, but people like to take a, a break and uh, have, have some tea and, and tea and pee time. Okay. okay. That sounds good. Okay, well, <clears throat> I know there were a bunch more questions, and um, so what's more important, uh, answering questions or uh, meditating and, and applying some of the things that we've talked about? What's that? Good. Let's have a meditation together. And rather than this being a guided meditation, let's just do a a silent sit. Um, And uh, I've hopefully given you enough of an overview of everything that you have things to work with. And... uh, So we'll meditate silently for, say, 30 minutes. And that will still give us some time afterwards for some questions. And uh, what I'd really hope for, but, you know, I don't have any expectations that I'm clinging to, um, is that uh, we'll have some questions where people are uh, speaking directly from their experience of, applying what we've talked about to your practice over the next half hour. Okay? All right. Can you remind us the instructions that we're giving? You remind you of the instructions? Yeah, for the the session. Okay. Well, depends on the stage that you're at. The one thing is um, just accept whatever's happening and if you if you know what stage you're at and you know the nature of the practice for that stage, then form the intentions to uh, to practice according to the stage you're at. If it turns out to be something different than uh, what you expected, then you go with whatever happens. Okay. Now, the most the the, the thread through all of this is try to use your introspective awareness to help you stabilize your attention and try to help, try to use those long periods of stable attention to enhance your introspective awareness 
and to make your introspective awareness uh, become uh, metacognitive, that metacognitive quality of watching your own mind. And then, if you succeed in doing that, and and don't be worried if you don't succeed in doing that, but if you succeed in having some nice long periods, or maybe that whole half hour, of sitting there in a state of metacognitive introspective awareness, watching your mind and watching what happens while, while your attention follows your breath, and then doing whatever it is that you have to do according to what happens. Just discover how fascinating and how wonderful it is to be able to observe your own mind and to learn through simple observation, be a naturalist of your own mind. No, no, no judging the behavior of your mind, just observation. You can think about it and analyze it after the bell rings. Okay? The extraspective awareness comes more easily, and so, you know, if you uh, develop your extraspective, use extraspective awareness in order to have increase the strength of your of your per, per, uh, peripheral awareness altogether. But to the degree that you're able, begin to develop that introspective awareness. Um, ultimately. Extrospective awareness is most valuable when you're out there in the world doing things. Okay, so if you're playing basketball or if you were at a karate match or something like that, extrospective awareness is really important. But sitting in meditation, it's just the form of peripheral awareness that comes easiest, so we use it to give us a step up to developing strong peripheral awareness, which we can then bring introspectively, and then ultimately to gain that metacognitive perspective on it. Okay? Um, I have a, a similar question to um, one I asked last night, if you don't mind, and that is that um, when I was trying to focus, and this seems like a really important question because it's kind of a gating item for actually focusing on like one thing. Um, so when I try to focus on the sensations of the breath at the tip of my nose, I have tried the strategy of um, trying to kind of... Um, conglomerate them, if you will, and like pretend that they're sort of one thing. Um, so like if I'm looking at the sensations there, it's like, it's like a blip, blip, blip. And, and maybe like my attention sort of just moves from like blip to blip and they seem like they're kind of next to each other. Um, I know this probably sounds strange, but I'm not able to like focus on like one specific thing there because it kind of just goes away. Okay, so you said you conglomerate 
them into. Yeah, like I try to pretend that like there's this ball of sensation at the tip of my nose and then it's all kind of just part of this. Like I'm kind of fabricating something or trying to so that I can focus on it, if that makes sense. Okay, well, I mean, if if you don't fabricate anything intentionally, don't you feel the air moving over your the skin of your nostrils or over your upper lip or inside your nose? Yeah, I, I definitely feel it. But I guess what I'm saying is that um, those feelings uh, sort of go away like rather quickly. Um, you stop I, feeling them. No, it's not, that I, it's not that I stop feeling them. It's that they're not, um, they feel awfully choppy, like not continuous. Oh, by themselves, they seem to break up. Yes. Into, uh, and, uh, okay, that's, that's very interesting. That's the, um, about, um, would you say that choppiness is about eight to ten times per second? No. <laughs> no. Two per second? Oh, uh, yeah. Two per uh, second. Maybe, maybe three or four. Okay. Five. Or three or four. Um, that's, um, that's something that does happen sometimes that, um, you, you perceive it as being a, a sequence of separate chunks of sensation. Um, and is that, that's a problem I take it. Well, what I'm saying is I feel like I get distracted by the fact that I'm looking for something that's continuous for me to, and I'm, I'm um, aware of your, uh, I forget the exact name of it, but you're kind of like mind moments or moments of consciousness model. So I kind mm-hmm. of get where maybe this is like a signal of something that I'll more fully understand experientially down the line. But right now it feels like a hindrance to my actually being able to mm-hmm. like really focus on one thing. Yeah. Well, it is, it is something that does happen further down the line as you put it. Um, and it's at this point, it's disturbing. It's a hindrance. Have, have you tried observing that just the sensations of the breath in the abdomen? Um, yes, I have. And it's, it's the same thing anywhere. Um, no matter where it is, there's a certain choppiness to it. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. So, What's wrong with that? Um, well, it feels like if I'm trying to develop stability of attention, like you've said, um, mm-hmm. then it feels rather unstable. Like, yeah. Well, it sounds like the breath, the, the quality of the sensations doesn't have continuity to it, but um, stability of attention, if your attention is, say you were placing your attention on uh, a light that was blinking on and off. You could still have your stable attention on, on that light, right? Oh, that's a good point. I haven't really framed it that way to myself. Yeah. Because, you know, it's what you want is your attention to be stable. The object of your attention, uh, I mean, even, even if it were continuous, it would be continuously changing. You know, there's the in-breath, and it has several different phases to it. And then there's a pause, and then there's out-breath with several different phases to it. Now, for most people, they would perceive those different 
phases of the in-breath and the out-breath as being a more or less continuous process. And But for you, they're, they're kind of broken up into chunks. But um, can you just let it be that way and 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 it doesn't the behavior of your object of of attention is a, a different thing than the stability of your attention itself is your are you are you having distracting thoughts uh yeah but i think that that's i i wouldn't uh, i i would expect those anyway just because of you, that that's now. right you would expect those anyway so um what I would suggest is that you, I mean, I don't know why that you're experiencing that choppiness uh, if you're not in a stage of meditation and doing a practice where that naturally occurs and does and is related to the, the, uh, the phenomenon that gives rise to the moments of consciousness model. I, uh, if I may, um, I honestly think it's because I practice in the Mahasi style and I like feel like I spent too much time trying to see like and now I trying to see arising and passing away exactly and now I like can't (laughs) oh okay well turn it off okay well you shouldn't have to turn it off you could just let it be there and if it's there it's there and if it goes away it goes away I wonder if that's possible for you yeah, I, I think the frame you put on it of stability of attention, not stability of the object, was really uh, key. So thank you. Okay, great. So looking at these stages, you know, it makes me realize that I, need, I am in a much lower stage than what I thought I am. <laughs> And also makes me like uh, realize that it's about enjoying the process as well. I wanna be in stage ten now, but I'm not. And um, so I was wondering, like, um, if you could spare a few words about the belief. You know, like if you believe, like you you can, for example rich alignment, or if you believe like you can be like fully compassionate with yourself, mm-hmm. whether that would um, make the process more enjoyable? Yes, yes. Um, it, it, it definitely helps your motivation a lot if you believe that it's possible to become awakened. If you, I mean, anything you're doing, if, if you believe that you can succeed at it, it's going to be uh, easier and more satisfying, and you're going to have a lot more patience with it. But I, mm, so many of the hindrances that we encounter is because we don't really believe, right? And uh, the, the, I mean, at least I'm talking about myself. And um, so the, that many of the difficulties I find is because many times I I don't fully believe. And so, yeah. like talking to people that seems that they really believe. So makes me realize, uh, sub, like it, it is possible, right? Like sometimes mm-hmm. you look, talk to monks and they tell you that they didn't believe in themselves, that they they didn't believe they would be enlightened. And when you look at them, you think, "Wow, I mean, I thought you were enlightened before we had this conversation." You mm-hmm. know, so the fact that you doubt about yourself 
he makes me feel really good. As I doubt about myself. <laughs> yeah. So you're doing at least as well as those monks. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, that... Doubt. Doubt is definitely a hindrance. And it's something that... Um, that success is... Success really helps overcome the hindrance of doubt. Right? Um, now, if, if you... You know, the, the method that I teach, um, the feedback that I get, a tremendous amount of feedback from many sources, is people say, um, I just started meditating and I can't believe I'm already, you know, at stage six or seven or something like that. Or I have people that say, I've been med- meditating for 20 years and realize that uh, I'm still just a beginner. I took up this method, and now I'm at an advanced stage. Uh, well, they did get a payoff from all the work they did for 20 years, but uh, this method it works. It's very systematic. It's based on it's based on the way human brains and minds work, and uh, I I would be the last to say it couldn't be improved upon. I do know that uh, it always bothered me when I would read the suttas that the Buddha went around and people were getting enlightened, getting awakened. I don't like the word enlightened. People are becoming awakened right and left all over the place. Dozens of them, hundreds of them, thousands of them. You know, there were groups of arhats that numbered 1,200 got together and, and talked and you know, and and then at the same time, uh, in much of the Buddhist world, it was believed uh, that uh, that there were no arhats anymore, and that stream entrants were very rare, and that people only got enlightened after thousands of lifetimes or tens of thousands of lifetimes. That's all a very discouraging point of view. But if you contrast that with what the sutta said, what it said to me is somehow we've lost our way. You know, we're not doing the same thing that that he was doing back then. I've done my best through my own experience and my study and everything, and augmented, fortunately, by uh, some knowledge of how the nervous system and brain work, to come up with a system that really does work for people. And... I have large numbers of people that are not only successful in becoming very skilled meditators, becoming adept meditators, but a lot of people who have achieved it. There's basically what are called four paths or four stages of awakening that the Buddha defined himself. And large numbers of people that have achieved first path, second path, third path, and even fourth path. So... I'm offering you a method that really works. And so if you can, you know, doubt, there's a healthy doubt and there's unhealthy doubt. Okay. Healthy doubt says, I'll believe it when I see it, but I'm going to go and look and see for myself. That's healthy. Unhealthy doubt is, I don't believe it. I'm not even going to bother trying. And so uh, hopefully, hopefully you can have only the healthy kind of doubt. And if you follow this method, I'll be very surprised if you don't 
kind of find yourself saying, I'm doing so well that, gee, I'm starting to believe I might even become awakened if I keep this up. Because I think that you would. All right, you, the gentleman in the white shirt over there can be next, okay? That, that's, that's okay, that's okay. Um, so my question is, um, I think I'm progressing on my stages and I feel like I could meditate and keep my attention longer on my breath and also you know, go back to the peripheral awareness and bring it back. But I noticed that some days I... Um, there's a lot more thoughts coming in and then the other days when I feel like I have more grip of my meditation skill and some days it feels like it's not the same, you know, it's like back to stage two mm-hmm. or something. So would you have any tips on how to, um, you know, overcome that? Um, oops. This is what's normal. That you see on on the left hand side here, that on one day person might be stage three, another day stage four, another day stage oh those these are dates. Here's the stage. On the third of May, stage four, on the fourth of May, somewhere between two and three, on the fifth of May, all the way up to stage five, and then on the Day after that, back to stage three. That's normal. That's completely normal. So you don't need to worry about that. The typical thing is that most people are practicing over a range of about three stages. You know, there'll be two, three, four, but mainly in three. And then there'll be three, four, five, but mainly in, in, in four. And that's, that's very normal. But it's also normal during during a single sit to sometimes have a lot of variation. You'll have you'll have you you can have a sit where you're you're normally meditating at stage four, and all of a sudden you're having a stage stage six meditation, and you, you sit the whole sit that way, and it's wonderful. And then you expect it to be the same, or or at least almost as good the next day, but instead. You find you're like like this poor fellow here. You're bouncing all over the place. So so that is normal. Okay, just just expect it. And the tip that I can give you is just to always meditate according to what's happening in your mind at the time. During that sit and one day at the next, um, track it, but don't get attached to it getting too attached to the idea of progress and then you have to define for yourself what's progress and what's not. Then you're setting yourself up for expectations that you can be disappointed by. Disappointment leads to frustration and impatience. So try to, you know, trust in the process. Trust that it will work and just go with the flow of whatever's happening. Okay? Okay. Thank you. Yes.
and pass it over this way. Um, Hi. Uh, you mentioned the floor path model when you were talking with the gentleman yes. here. So I saw online you had a question and answer. I don't remember when. And someone asked you about the floor path model. Uh, and you said you felt it was, obviously you considered it useful, but you also said it was an intentional simplification on the Buddhist part. And that there really doesn't have the finality that it's often presented with and that individuals eventually realize there is no end. Can you say more? Yes. Well, yeah, there is. The Buddha presented it in the form of uh, four paths or stages. Um, And as though once you achieved the fourth stage, arhat, that's sort of the end of the path. And then he also gave a couple of teachings where he said, what I've, you know, what I've taught you is compared to dirt under my fingernails as opposed to all of the earth, or it's a few, it's a handful of leaves compared to, to all the leaves in the forest. I think that in the teachings that have come down to us, by simplifying it to four stages, uh, with to have spoken about more than that, um, he would have been speaking over the heads of the majority of the people that he was talking about. And not only that, I think that people who reach that fourth path the, of the arhat, they discover for themselves uh, they don't need to be told that there is that there is farther to go. Um, it's also a simplification in the sense that uh, it, it makes it sound as though um, that the very clear cut stages and and you know it's like graduating from from. Uh, one year of, of school and moving on to the next and you know it's it's not really um, people can um, move from one stage to a higher stage but there's aspects of their mental and spiritual development that haven't caught up with that transition and uh, sooner or later they have to go back and uh, and make up for that. So uh, what we refer to as the stream entrant, the first path, is it's a transition from which a person never moves back from. In the sense, well, that there can be a number of occasions when a person gets lost in their conditioned responses and behaves as though they were still a worldling. But it doesn't last very long. They they realize, you know, they they catch themselves and they reawaken again. And I think that's why the term seven times returner. They return to samsara, to, to the delusion that they lived in uh, a number of times. But they never go back they can never go back to being a person who doesn't know the truths that they have seen and they have experienced. The second path 
is not quite so clear-cut. It involves two things, a great attenuation of craving, so that craving doesn't have as much power over as it did over the person. And um, at the same time, it occurs primarily because the person realizes that they that throughout first first path they've still been afflicted by craving, and that the only the only experiences that they've ever had, which were truly satisfactory, which were not were not tainted with dukkha, were those in which there was no uh, vestige of craving left. So. The second path is about somebody who is really highly motivated to overcome craving. And because of their realization to the degree to which craving is, is the enemy and the problem, um, they, uh, they are much, le- much less subject to becoming overwhelmed by craving, but they still experience it. So you see, that's in, even by its definition, it's not quite so clear-cut as that. Um, yeah, the, the, the model is quite understandably, uh, like, like my models and like other models, they are, there's an element of simplification involved to meet the needs of people without adding confusion and further consternation to it. So. Thanks. Is uh, time? Oh, it's five oh three. Well, I guess our time for today has expired, and, and uh, I think uh, well, we'll pick up where we left off tomorrow morning. Okay, I'll see you then. Ten o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.